First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. You're tuned in to what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Earth. It is, of course, 4ZZZ. Be it on your conventional wireless radio by tuning in to the classic frequency of 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4zzz.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back to our show or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on-demand feature also found at that URL. We also now have a weekly podcast of the show for your listening pleasure a condensed version of the show without the music, which my mum prefers. Just search for our show name, which is, of course, no idea, spelled with a K, your weekly dose of science interlaced with all Australian music with an asterisk. And joining me today to speak all things science are some of my favourite science communicators. May I please introduce the wonderful Jay. Hello. And the master, the OG master. <laughs> Good morning, Gabe. He's very relaxed this morning, isn't he, Jay? Yeah, I yeah, thought I'd tone it down a bit today. Nice yeah. and toned down show. That, the kangaroo stuff that the Z line has mentioned, Max, yeah. it's a pretty, pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. If you do see, because I do some wildlife rescues of my own. I've never gone and done a, a roo on the side of the road. But I, I, have <laughs> so done a, I, I have gotten a wallaby out of a pool, but I've never done a roo on the side of the road. Yeah, right. But uh, yeah, if you do see one, Call up a wildlife rescue service mm-hmm. that's the, whatever's the local one near you because they do need to go do pouch checks. And a little fun fact, oh, okay, if you ever yeah. see a kangaroo on the side of the road, even if the mother's dead, they can get the joey out sometimes. Sure. Um, even if the joey can't be survived, you need to sort of humanely euthanize it rather than leaving it in the pouch. Um, but if you ever see a, a roo on the side of the road or a wallaby that's been spray painted, usually like with an X, Usually that means wildlife rescuers have gone and done a pouch check and that's their sign so that other wildlife rescuers don't go and check the same pouch and, you know, stand by the side of a highway looking at a, at a dead kangaroo. But yeah, no, do check in on that. Not going to make a lot of sense to our podcast listeners, though, that story because the, the news is one of the things that gets cut out, Max. But I do have another little tidbit for the podcasters uh, because we got asked, because we are uh, now podcasting, no we idea. Are. We got asked to make a little ad to play out across the station. Yeah. Have that go. I've put one together, Max. No. It, uh, now, I need to be clear. This has not been approved yet. My, <laughs> <laughs> I love the caveat. My version of the ad yeah. that uh, I did send in. I've gotten no response. It's been two days and there's been no response to the wow. email. Wow, we'll two see how days. Yeah. But I, I reckon I will play it for you guys so I can get your feedback so I can figure out if, I'm, if I've done something wrong here. To be I'm fair, I've already listened though. to it. Yeah. Well, too bad. Jay hasn't, and neither yeah. has anyone else, Max, so you're going to have to listen to it again. Thank you. I'm going to be clear, though. At the end of this, I want some nice, thick compliment sandwiches, or I might have a bit of a breakdown. You ready? <laughs> 
Okay. The weekly dose of science on 4ZZZ is now available as a podcast. I learned that you can hear the difference between different water temperatures when they're poured. I'm going to pour one after the other mm-hmm. into a different glass and you have to tell me which one is which temperature. I've got a hot and a cold. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, here's the first one. Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm saying cold. It sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? Okay. Yeah. Here's the second one. <laughs> oh. Well played. Shut up. <laughs> Search No Idea for Triple Z on your favourite podcasting app. That's spelled K-N-O-W. Like, can no idea? It's a visual pun on an audio platform. I don't know why we did it. How do you think that goes? <laughs> That's great. It's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the best. I think that's the best story we've ever I done on this show. Wait, that's an automatic highlight reel for the end Gabe, of this year. Gabe, yeah. Outdone yourself. <laughs> Outdone yourself, Gabe. That was really good. You tune into 4ZZZ and the show is No Idea, your weekly dose of science with me, Max, Jay, and the master Gabe. And it's time for this. Would you like to kick us off, Gabe? Yeah, this is show number like 50 where I just have to repeat for the record that I do not approve of the term the master and still hate it every single time I hear it out of your mouth. Okay, thank you. My weird science this week is... Look, I, I... I wasn't over the moon with the weird science that was on display this week. Mm. I, I went back and forth across a couple of stories and I wasn't super sold on any of them. So I've gone with the stupidest of the lot, which is the science behind belly flops. We ready for okay. this? Oh, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because apparently science has an answer to how to avoid the pain of a bad belly flop. And it's not an intuitive answer. Uh, the engineers at Brown University, QS ranking? They'd be 385. Not even close. 214. 73. Took a large <laughs> cylinder closer. and dropped that into the water. So they took like, it looks, I don't know, it looks like a large cylinder. It looks like a toilet roll filled in made of metal. Uh, and they dropped that into water and they gave it then a soft nose with flexible springs. The idea being that the springs would absorb part of the impact with the water and stop the belly flop. Because they're like, you know, the belly flop pain and the major, major bit of force that you get on impact must be the, that moment where you hit the water or where the object hits the water. So if you can reduce that impact by using springs, then you reduce the pain of a belly flop or reduce the force in, in a you know object like this cylinder hitting the water. Uh, and that's where they found a problem though, because it didn't actually always work. Sometimes the springs made the impact with water worse. Sometimes because uh, the impact gets combined with the vibrations caused by the spring. So you get an initial impact uh with the water plus a shudder through the object which can make the whole situation even worse so it's sort of you could probably transfer it a bit to a human context with the belly flop and think that if you have the wrong amount of springiness to you you're going to cause an additional like force to come through through all the vibrations shuddering you as well as the initial impact the key they found was to use springs that are soft enough to absorb the impact with the water without triggering more rapid vibrations that add to the overall force which means the secret to a painless belly flop is adding the right type of springs which is probably a little more useful to naval and marine engineers than it is to us okay that's my weird science (laughs) very cute very cool (laughs) am i up next yeah Yeah. okay have you heard of the initials hrv no hrv Something racing vehicle, isn't it? That's right, it's a Honda. The uh, (laughs) HRV is a measure of the variation in time between your heartbeats. This variation... Oh, we're not actually talking about HRVs. I got you. Okay, cool. Heart rate variability. That's it. 
this variation is controlled by a primitive part of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system or ANS. It works behind the scenes automatically regulating our heart rate, blood pressure, breathing and digestion among other key tasks. The ANS is subdivided into two large components, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, also known as the fight or flight mechanism and the relaxation response. A new study has shown a direct correlation between instances of bad grammar and subjects' heart rate variability, revealing for the first time how our bodies go into stress mode when hearing misused grammar. <laughs> oh my God, this explains so many Google Docs I've been a part of in my life, Max, with the, the shared edits going on. And, and you just want to fly. Oxford, Get the, the hell Oxford out of there. comma debates, yeah. the whole, yeah, this is, okay, it's fight or flight. <laughs> the new study from the University of Birmingham, QS ranking? Um, 150. 42. 84. Mm-hmm. Reveals a statistically significant reduction in HRV in response to bad language in the form of simple grammatical errors. Simply put, the more gra- grammatical errors a person hears, the more regular their heartbeat becomes, which is a sign of stress. For the study, 41 British English-speaking adults listened to 40 English speech samples, half of which contained grammatical errors. The participants had their heart rate tracked via a sensor attached to the middle finger of their non-dominant hand at a rate of 2,048 samples per second. A generalised additive mixed effects model was used to confirm the cardiovascular response to grammatical violations. Heart rate variability was shown to decrease linearly as the number of errors increased, but only up to a certain level, after which HRV remained constant. This observation brings into focus a new dimension of the intricate relationship between physiology and cognition. In conclusion, being able to use a highly portable and non-intrusive technique with language stimuli creates exciting possibilities for accessing the language knowledge of individuals from a range of populations in their natural environment and authentic communication situations. So do you want to hear some samples that I've sort of conjured together <laughs> using AI voices? So uh, of badly. Course. Yeah, sure. <laughs> i got Keanu again. Keanu <laughs> This has zero <laughs> mistakes. And see how your heart rate variability goes. Okay. I think the lifestyle of young people in a big city is that we are in a rush all the time. We eat everything on the hoof. We don't have enough time to spend with our friends or our family. We work long hours. We go to the theater or galleries. I think lots of people who live in a big city are single because they don't have enough time to meet people and to build a relationship. I think that having no time to be in a relationship is one of the disadvantages to living in a big city. Did you write this? Where did it come from? This is their this sample. Is like this is their sample. Your okay. This is from their diary. <laughs> this is what? It's your, from your diary, Max. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Keanu with a 45% error rate in grammatical error. Oh, I'm stressed already. Yeah, let's do it. I think that culture is one of the areas most affected by a globalization. And it's hard to say whether it is the positive or negative impact. I think that thanks to a globalization, people all around the world listen to same music, watch the same movies, and read same books. They can discuss the same issues with each other and understand each other better because they know what they are talking about. 
Okay. Did that upset you? I, I was, I did feel stressed? a bit more stressed, but okay. then that's countered by Keanu Reeves speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like it's not a fair test because every time you play an Ava I voice, I start to get stressed because I don't yes. know if it's yeah. going to last for 10 seconds or 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got AIV to speak now. I got her permission to use her voice, so <laughs> we'll see. You, you, which one do you want to hear? You want to hear zero error density or fifty percent error density? Well, we might as well we might as well go fifty percent errors, right? Yeah. There's no real point in listening to zero. <laughs> to the correct one. Yeah. Let's go. I think we should be given opportunity to choose between normal medicine and alternative medicine. Um, some boss and they, I had opportunity to use the certain alternative medicine because my friend's mother has the clinic and she convinced me to take part in one session. Like, it helped me. I, she couldn't explain how it worked, so I don't believe in it, but I'm, I know it sometimes works. I believe that if something doesn't harm you, you can only gain from it. See, again, I'm just thinking about like how weird it is to hear someone that sounds exactly like if V was American. Like, it's so weird. <laughs> Stressful. That's my weird science. Okay, Job thank done. you, Max. And we heard from, from Chris, uh, this is my field, HRV. I get it after making a typo when chatting with 4 triple Z. Request line. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Zero, one, two. And this is what they recovered using AI in the data set. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God someone's working on this. I don't know what I'd do without it. You tune into 4 triple Z. And the show is No Idea with me, Max, Jay, and Gabe. And we thought. We might do part two of this. What do you got for us, Jay? I love rats. You guys should know this about me. I love rats. They are the most adorable little guys. They're awesome animals. Um, They're like little puppies. It's just like pocket-sized puppies. They just crawl around and they want hugs. Yeah. And you can teach them to do all kinds of stuff. Mm. Like, have you guys ever seen the video of the rats playing basketball? No. They actually taught the rats to, like, okay. get the little ball and put it through the hoop. It's amazing. You, see, you heard the story of the, the rats that were, like, carrying pizza in and around the New York subways and about how they were all trained by this one really <laughs> strange person who, like, tries to make viral videos and yeah. train them to run pizza around. So, anyway, yeah, crazy yeah. animals. <laughs> That's just strange enough to be true. Yeah. Um, they can also move things with their mind, which is cool. Uh, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> Are these these cartoons you've been watching? <laughs> <laughs> no. So this research on telekinetic rats came out last week. Yeah, I know, telekinetic rats. It came out last week from the yeah. Howard Hughes Institute. Um, the Howard Hughes Institute. Mm -hmm. They were aiming to study how our brains go back in time to revisit memories and jump ahead to imagine future scenarios or what they call mental time travel. So basically being able to imagine yourself in different places. They wanted to know if rats were also able to do this, if they were able to be in one place and think about being in another place. So they trained them to move on a spherical treadmill and I'm imagining like a rat zorb, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you just put it in a little ball and it runs around. Um, Other way around, it's on top of the ball. It's on top of the ball. It's like okay. it's like there's like an arm holding it to the top of the ball, and so when it runs, it sort of moves the ball. Oh, it kind of it's kind of just like a computer mouse sort of. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's really weird. Um, 
And their movements changed the uh, 3D virtual world that was projected onto screens surrounding them. While the rats explored, um, electrodes recorded the signals from the parts of their brains that hold spatial information. That's the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Then the researchers wanted to figure out if the rats could imagine their way through the world um, without having that visual stimulus around them. So they were trained to mentally move a virtual cube into a column using only their brain activity. So not running around on the little thing and trying to find it, but just by imagining the place. If they did it right, they get a reward of water, which I find concerning. <laughs> like, were they getting water otherwise? You'd hope, right? But apparently they were rewarded with water. Like, finally, here's some fresh water to drink. Essentially, the computer... Do you wanna, do, I, I, th- I watched a video of this. Yeah. Do you want what makes it worse? They, they also play this little, like... Ding, like dopamine sound that oh, goes no. with it as well when it goes in. Right. That's terrible. Oh, mm. Essentially, the computer program responded to the signals from their brain activity. So if the rats were imagining the right spot, the cube would move there. Researchers found that the rats could concentrate and hold the cube in the right spot for several seconds. And in another task, they were even able to navigate through the virtual world to find the cube first. So basically, what does this mean? Unfortunately, they're like, conclusions of this aren't so exciting. It's like, whoa, we got rats to be able to move stuff with their mind. And then the conclusion is like, yeah, we probably activate the hippocampus when we imagine places, which is not as hugely exciting as you'd sort of hope. But there we go. We use the hippocampus when we imagine places, when we do our little mental time travel. And hopefully we can use it to virtually move stuff around in virtual worlds someday. Nice. On Mars. On Mars. <laughs> <laughs> You're tuning to 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Jay and Gabe. And it's time for a bit of water science, Gabe. Time for our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist. You may have seen there was a bit of fuss over the last week about marine invasive species or particularly the urchins that are moving further south in the face of warming waters. So our friendly neighborhood marine scientist Peter has gone through and dug up the science. Before we start at Max, I need to put in a small disclosure, mainly because we all have a uh, self-inflated view of our self-importance on this radio station. But there is a mention here of, of um, Good Fish, the Sustainable Seafood Guide, which is a, th- a thing that is made by an organization that both Peter and I work for. It's not part of the story, it's just mentioned, and I thought I'd say that beforehand. But you can roll the story now, Max. I genuinely think this might be a dream for some people, so I'm very happy to be able to tell you that the time has finally come. We might be able to solve one of our problems by eating. So as with me, your friendly neighborhood marine scientist, I'm obviously talking about some type of seafood, and today it's urchins. But like all things seafood, it's a pretty complicated story. Urchins are really cool animals. They're in the same family as starfish and sea cucumbers. And one of my favorite things about them is their hydrovascular system, which essentially is just having water transport everything around your body instead of blood, which is metal in my opinion. But when most people think about sea urchins, they're probably thinking primarily of the spines. And that's fair because they really do hurt if you touch them. And I even met someone once with one lodged in her foot for over a year, which don't think about that too long. Anyway, urchins are found all over, but the long-spined sea urchin is native to the temperate waters off of New South Wales, found in places like Sydney. Except now, we're finding them in Tasmania. As we know, our oceans are warming up and fast, but this is definitely not uniform. Different areas are experiencing very different rates of heating. And one area in very hot water is the Australian Southeast. And this not only places a lot of stress on the species that live there, it also creates a new home for those who like it toasty. 
all over the world, species are moving into new areas, usually away from the equator, trying to refine their perfect temperature or taking advantage of the new conditions. Almost 200 species have been documented moving in Australian seas already. And this is causing some havoc, because not everything can just up and move, and so these new invaders can quickly become a problem to those who aren't evolved to deal with them. Longspine sea urchins are one such invader. The heat has now reached a point where winter averages are now high enough that their larvae can develop during spawning. And because of this, their population has exploded and their range has expanded over 650 kilometers south, down past eastern Victoria and all the way to southern Tasmania. And they're literally eating ecosystems as they go, with the urchin being named the most urgent threat to kelp forests in Australia's Great Southern Reef. As heard before, these little guys eat algae. They start with the kelp, which down south forms the most stunning forests. The urchins clear felling it bit by bit, and then once that's all gone, they'll just graze on smaller encrusting algae over the rocks. At which point it's called an urchin baron, because it looks pretty barren. With unchecked numbers, they will literally eat a forest to the stumps. And like a land-based forest, this can have massive impacts on the creatures that rely on it, like abalone or the leafy sea dragon in this case. Now, just to be crystal clear, this is not to say that urchins are bad. Not at all. In fact, here where I am in Sydney, they're native and help create diversity in the ecosystem. And even though the name is scary, barons are definitely not universally a bad thing either. It's just the location and the prevalence of them now. So what can we do? Well, the best answer would be a natural predator, something that already keeps them in balance. Unfortunately, the primary predator of urchins in this area, rock lobsters, are currently recovering from overfishing and climatic stress, so they're largely out of action. There is also some research that shows that they're not super effective against pre-existing barons as well. So the next thing to do is a cull. But culls can be time-consuming and really expensive. So how do you make them cheap? You eat them. Or rather, you get other people to eat them and pay you for it. You know, like regular food stuff. You see, sea urchin roe, also known as kina in Aotearoa or uni in Japan, is already a popular food around the world. So there's definitely a market for it, something that has been proved in Tasmania, which started a small urchin fishery in 2018 as the urchins started becoming a problem. The fishery works within the abalone fishery there and is actually supported by the government. The urchins are all harvested by hand by divers, meaning that there's no bycatch, which means it's highly unlikely that this fishery will directly affect or have any harm to other creatures. Its effect comes from the removal of the urchins themselves, which is actually pretty much the point anyway. And it's a pretty rare thing to see a fishery opened for the express benefit of the environment. In fact, the fishery is widely regarded to be sustainable, with WWF publicly stating its support and a green listing on the Good Fish Sustainable Seafood Guide. As of last week, the Senate has also formally recommended investment in the fishery as a key tool in the urchins' control. And that's because it seems to be working, with results of the Tasmanian fishery showing the slowing of barren growth and in the initial recovery of kelp in some areas. There are some things to be aware of, like at first when the urchin are plentiful, they actually don't make food-worthy roe. However, until they're fished down to that point, they can still be sold as fertilizer, which is pretty cool. It should also be mentioned that there are some very legitimate concerns with the commercialization of what is now an invasive species, as this hasn't really ever been successful in the past, at least when the goal is eradication. But in this dire moment of need, I think the real question is, will you help us eat our way out? Tune into to Z and the show is Ooh. No Idea, with me, Max, Jay, Gabe, and Izzy. Hello. Welcome. <laughs>
We need to weigh into some controversy here, don't we? Controversy. Mm. Controversy. Yeah. We've, uh, we, we talked about, I think you two, Jay and Izzy, talked about the Australian Bird of the Year competition a few weeks back, which yes. is run by The Guardian and Bird Life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Big deal. Big deal. Mm-hmm. Massive. Who, do we, who are we going for? Did, did no idea have a formal position going into that Bird of the Year comp? No, no I think we, we were divided. No. Yeah. Um, not divided per se. I think we just had intri- like different takes. <laughs> I think we were divided. <laughs> did I we? would say we were divided. Maybe I just repressed that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's now resurfacing. I can't remember who won. Was it the Magpie that won this No, it did not. No, it was... It a, came it was close a, though. Yeah. Came close. Someone look up who won this year because it's the New Zealanders' turn, <laughs> mm. and their theirs is run by a group called Forest and Bird, which is one of their big environmental organisations in New Zealand, and they're celebrating a hundred years, so they're calling it the Bird of the Century competition, which has raised the stakes to the level where John Oliver, the US talk show host, uh, also famous for voicing uh, the the bird in the remake of The Lion King. As my, along with other other things he's done, has has waded into the competition and is advocating for one particular bird called the Pudikeriki, uh and is sort of hijacking the vote, being accused of vote rigging, election rigging uh, in the New Zealand <laughs> Bird of the Century competition. Right. Uh, there's a lot of birds up there. I think there's 75 birds in the competition, including a couple extinct ones. Uh, it's a big deal in New Zealand and is not been without controversy in the past there's apparently been <laughs> issues with uh, at least alleged if not actual like rigging of votes <laughs> in previous uh-huh. years yeah. they do it every two years i think and in 2020 and in 2008 there was a lot of controversy because they excluded the kakapo for winning too many times no. the kakapo's the big <laughs> i love the kakapo parrot. yeah <laughs> so not without its controversy, but the Bird of the Century competition has opened. It's opened on the 30th and it closes, I think, on the 12th with the votes announced on the 13th of this month. So very short time frames. Bird of the Century competition. I reckon we should all go in and cast our votes uh, and stop the US election interference into the, <laughs> Bird of the Century competition. I feel yeah. like we have to push this to the um, the New Zealand show here yes. at Four Triple Z and get their opinions. That's what I'm interested in. That's true. Yeah, that'll work out well. That'll work out. My quite votes well. with the Tui, if not the Kakapo. The Kakapo. Those guys. Also, it was the Swift Parrot that won this year. Swift Parrot. And nice. the Guardian Bird of Australia. Yeah. Right. That's right. It was too. Yeah. If you want to text in with your thoughts on the bird issue. Zero four two zero six two six seven three three. You can also go and subscribe at four triple z dot org dot au forward slash support. You can subscribe for as little as twenty dollars for your pet, right up to five hundred dollars if you want to become a super sub and get your name printed on the wall downstairs. Yes. I've got some bird science coming up, Max, on the fairy re- the, su- the fairy room, which won the Australian competition a few a few rounds Good. ago. There yeah. we go. Good. Fair enough. Take it away, Jay. Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to you for Triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I won't keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max and I'm not talking Van Staffen. Lights out and away we go. Did everyone catch it on the weekend? Yes. The race? Yeah. It's pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a sprint weekend, which I, I, I don't particularly <laughs> like. <laughs> But it's, uh, it seemed to work so out weird, all right. Aren't they? Yes. The way they, uh, yeah. It's like two races. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like a, a race part 
two, let's say. I don't know. A half race and then a real race. And then yeah, so it's like a, it's like the the pre gaming before the actual race. They're thinking that they might uh, put the sprint race on the Friday instead of the Saturday, which would be better, I think. Mm. So well, this is what I propose: free practice one on the Friday mm-hmm. goes for an hour, mm-hmm. and then you do your race straight away. Somehow they work out how they start. I'd probably the best time from the free practice, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, so they ha- they have the sprint. Yep. And then uh, Saturday comes along, and you have a free practice two. And that's a longer session, just so they can really set up the car for the main race. Mm-hmm. Then have quali, proper quali, for mm-hmm. the feature race. And then on Sunday, have the feature race. So it really separates the sprint race from the actual from feature the actual race. race. Yeah, and fair. they still get plenty of time to set up the car, so it's not a shambles. Hopefully. So. <laughs> <laughs> if qualifying goes well. That's right. Because they only get one, one practice session, really, just to dial in the cars on a sprint, sprint weekend. Mm. And it, we saw that Daniel Ricciardo got knocked out in Q1, unfortunately. No. Yeah. And so this basically compri- compromised his race for Sunday when the tyre took out his rear wing. Mm. Oh. Mm. Wasn't that Mate, unbelievably that was, bad luck? There was a, a just a crash on turn one of the race. Yes. But no one's fault. It just happens sometimes. Yeah. And the two drivers who got the most shafted because they were the least involved in the original incident <laughs> were the two Aussie drivers. Yeah. One has the back of his car Conspiracy. swiped by another car yeah. and then the tyre flies up in the air, yeah. hovers for a moment and lands right on top of Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, you couldn't have placed it better, could you? No. It was a double homicide. Like. And both their wings were taken out. So yeah, someone smashed into the back of Piastri, took his wing out and the tyre took out Daniel's wing. Ridiculous. Anyway... Yuki, uh, Daniel's teammate, he he got he came home in some points. How did he go in the main race? I know he came home in the in the sprint pretty well. What did he, he do? Eight. He was Check eighth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they they're, not so bad. They, they, they're, they're no longer P ten, are they? So they're where they're way up there. They're trying mm. for vying for P seven in the yeah, which, which in Formula One world, there's the ten yeah. teams, two drivers each, yeah. and the difference between each place in those lower spots is roughly ten million mm. US dollars in prize money at yeah. the end of the season. It's amazing, isn't it? But yeah. it's nice seeing Yuki slowly work his way from, what, like 12th at the beginning of the season to <laughs> yeah, now reasonably... Yeah. He's now, in the single digits now. Now Daniel Ricciardo's there. Yeah. To, uh, yeah push I him. think push him up, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was, I suppose it was sort of uh, good news for Oscar Piastri because they did manage to fix his car. So he managed to get 70 laps of a circuit he's never driven before. Mm. As, and he basically tested, uh, treated it like a test session. Uh, Daniel was also very quick, apparently. He was the third fastest driver in the feature race, but they're already down a lap, so there's no way yeah. he could vie for mm. a podium position. It's very weird watching it because they're very clever with how they do the camera work on when you're watching it on TV to not show you the overlapping drivers, which gets really confusing when yeah. you're watching it in person With the because eventually first usually wraps around and starts overtaking people, and they were a lap down, but they were overtaking people who were technically a lap ahead of them because they'd had to come in and change their rear wings and things. Mm. And it's like... Yeah, the whole time you hear you hear like little moments of oh, Ricardo's actually really quick, but he's a lap behind. So even though he's overtaking everyone, it doesn't count on the leaderboard, yeah. and so you don't really get to see any of it happening. But yeah, if it, if that hadn't happened, it would have been a good race, mm. good for next mm. year, I guess. Let's hope so. Anyway, the next race coming up, we've got um, in Las Vegas. 
I know. I've seen so much footage of them hyping up the LA yes, LA track. Do oh, you think? I think it's going to be a bit of a. Uh, oh, it's going to be so much showboating. Yeah, I just know the US love a good showboat. They do, but uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll have to wait for next year for the race to be really good. Like mm, a bit mm. like Miami, where they had the first year was just a teething sort of thing, mm, and they'll have mm. the same issue in Las Vegas. Mm. And F1 even got a mention on Bill's show yesterday on the workers' power, would you believe? They're they're talking about the currently workers' union over there striking. So they're going on strike. So they're saying do not attend some of the casinos that they work at Mm -hmm, where they're mm -hmm. affiliated with the union. And uh, that should be interesting if they go on strike during the GP. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because they're they're holding out for better conditions, even though they've got a sort of record-breaking conditions uh, on the table. Mm. They want more. So, yeah, we'll see how that that works out. And Daniel Ricciardo, (laughs) second most liked person in the US of the Formula One drivers after... um, Is this what I think it is? No. Is this the... Oh, was He's going to appear on the Jimmy Kimmel yep. show. Yeah. <laughs> 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 my Instagram feed's full of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's going to be good. And Daniel speaks really well about um, Formula One. He's a good representative for the um, mm. sport. So it'll be interesting to see what he talks about on the Jimmy Kim- Kimmel live show. And finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. The flying Finn, Valtteri Bottas, drove his underperforming Alfa Romeo... <laughs> Finished second last in the sprint and followed that up with a brilliant DNF in the main race. (laughs) (laughs) And in good news, for avid motor rap listeners, the Phoenix, Roman Grosjean, will be back again next year racing in IndyCar. Roman will be driving for Junkers Hollinger Racing. So listeners can look forward to another year oh. of Grosjean oh. reports. See, I, th- I thought it was bad when we were pulling up tweets of him. Now we're, oh, I can't wait for actual substance Locked in the Roman Grosjean report. for another report. year. Oh, God, Max. Oh, no, it's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> you tune into to 4ZZZ and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Izzy and Gabe. Let me tell you about a little mystery surrounding why fairy wrens sing a secret signature song to their eggs. But first, fairy wrens, Max, you've got a list of about 20 birds that you know of. Yes. Is that one of them? No. Can you describe, take it's, a guess at describing what it looks like? It's fairy like the like the little oh, guy, not the, not the <laughs> boat, Max. <laughs> yeah, they're like a, a, a small bird and the plumage is a blue with white and a bit of aqua. Mm. Mm. If I googled fairy wren, it's got F E R R Y. Is that exactly what I'd get up? Yep. Uh, yeah. Don't forget, Pretty Max, nice. they were in the Guardian bird competition. Oh, were they? Okay. They were. They were. And they won a couple and of years ago. And they did ago. win. Oh, okay. And they sound like this. And they're pretty amazing. They sound like they're a like, human. They're very. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't hear anything, Gabe. Can we go one I more? Hear it. No. Oh, hang on. You get it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Okay. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) They're very pretty little birds, but they're also very interesting birds. Um, We have, I think, 10 species of them in the country. I think it's 10. This is like an area of of controversy in the bird world in Australia. I think it's 10 now. Uh, They're all sorts of different colors from all around the country, uh, except Tassie. And they sing each other duets. Some of them use their mating dances to intimidate predators. My personal favorite fact about the purple crowned fairy wren, one of the species, is it's up in the Kimberley. Its fact is it doesn't cheat on its partners because fairy wrens are uh, uh, serial cheaters to the point where 90% of the nests of superb fairy wrens have young in them from a different dad. Right. Uh, 
a different male to the one that's partnered up with the female who's laying in that nest, which mm. is such a problem for male superb fairy wrens. Their testes uh, go, uh, grow up to 5% of their body weight so that they can grow enough sperm to outcompete other or compete with other males and have enough of their genetic material transferred down to the next gen generation. So they're strange little creatures. <laughs> Lord have mercy. That's right. Don't let their looks deceive you. Can they fly uh, after that? Or? Hey, can they fly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you see one having difficulties, you know it's on a mission. <laughs> what a chad. <laughs> the superb fairy wrens are the ones <laughs> that I want to talk about now okay. because they're the centre of this new research hmm. into the signature songs and singing them to their eggs. Yeah. Um, which the, the, the superb fairy wrens are the like little black and blue ones that you would most likely have seen, especially around the Brisbane area. The mm -hmm. small little things, black, when, when they're in breeding plumage, the males are black. They have a, a long sort of fantail thing sticking out the back that mm. they can sort of keep thin or, or spread out. And they've got a blue patch around theirs at a chest and polar area. Mm. Those are the superb fairy wrens. The females look like a brown color, often with a bit of red around their eye. Mm. Uh, and that's what the males look like outside of breeding plumage too. Uh, but the singing to the eggs part that they do is actually not new. That, that discovery was made 11 years ago. And... This is a bit of what it sounds like. This is a mother singing to her eggs. Did that come through all right this time? Yeah, right. it did. Yeah. And what's the purpose of that, Kat? Of what? Of the mother singing to the eggs. Well, that's the whole point of the story, Max. That's oh. why I'm talking about it right now. Because this new discovery, part of a paper that's currently in preprint before publication, is all about teaching eggs their signature song. By making 624 mm. recordings of 125 female fairy wrens in their nests, mm -hmm. researchers from Flinders Uni, QS. Oh. Mm, it'd be 200. 300? 380. Tried uh -huh. to build on the work from 11 years ago. They wanted to know what these female furry wrens were singing to their eggs, as well as if it actually has any point, Max, mm. like you were getting to. And was it just a bit of a health check? You know, was it bonding? Are they trying to teach things to repair their chick stuff before they hatch? Uh, the answer is that superb furry wrens, along with seven other species, all sung signature songs. To the scientist, the signature song is known as the mother's B element vocalization. It's a call that's unique to each mother. Mm. It's her call. It also happens to be the same call nestlings produce shortly after hatching to beg. Right. right? Ooh, so yeah. what I'm going to play for you now is a clip of a mother calling and then a clip of its hatchlings, her hatchlings, calling back at a later point. Do another one. Not identical, but there is a signature in there for each hatchling to replicate what the mother has sung to it previously. Uh, and... What they found is when the eggs are around 10 days old, mother fairy wren started calling their signature song. Yes. Um, and then they did some tests to try and figure out if the eggs were actually picking up that song. They played the signature songs out of, uh, out of speakers at the eggs and then used a tool from the poultry industry to measure the heart rates of the unhatched embryos using the amount of light that was coming through the egg. Apparently you can do this. You can use the amount of light coming through the egg to measure the heart rate of the embryo inside. Mm. And you can mm. use that heart rate to figure out if the embryo is responding to stuff. A uh, unchanged heart rate means it's not responding and a lower heart rate from the fairy wren embryo inside the egg, probably meaning that it's paying attention to what it's hearing. When they played a song from the mother that wasn't her signature call, there wasn't a heart rate change. But when they played the signature call of the embryo's mother, the heart rates generally went down, indicating they were paying more attention to what the mother was singing when she was singing that signature song. 
About two weeks after hatchling, hatching, the newly hatched chicks start singing that song back at their mothers to beg for food. So my question to you, Max, I'm going to throw it back at you. Yeah. If the mothers, they, they, they found that if it was like nice, the mothers had to sing it nice and slowly during the egg phase. And that meant that there was a more close match to when they got the, the hatchlings sing it back. But why would chicks want to have a signature call with their mothers? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm still stuck. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to make a Sorry, joke, but I, I got nothing. Why would they have a signature? Signature call. Maybe it's Mothers just like teaching. it's like names, where it's like kind of. where you know, like um, to keep their out. family going. Yeah, or like when they're lost or something mm. like that. Like they can call out to their mum, and that's what, like the mum can call back. I think it's really cool that they do it from like very very early on. But yeah, yeah. Hmm. one of the reasons that the researchers suggest is that it may be so the mothers know who their chicks are when they're begging so they can avoid parasitic birds that lay their mm. own eggs in the fairy wren nest and mm. try and trick the mothers and the, the fathers yeah, into yeah. raising their own mm. their eggs That's of a different cool. species. Mm. So the mothers can communicate with their, embryo, uh, their, their with their chicks as they're developing from an embryo stage right up to when they're hatching and then after they hatch and bond through that signature call almost as like a password of knowing which ones yeah. their chicks are and which ones are some other bird, parasitic bird that's dropped its eggs into their nest instead mm. and trying to trick it into raising them. Uh, it could also just be to help them identify the call amongst the calls of all the other baby chicks yeah. that are calling around at the moment so they know when their chicks need something from them. Um, but that is my science story for the week. Mother Fairy Wren sings their eggs a signature song and it seems to help them figure out who their real babies are when they've hatched. That's so cool. It's also, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, it's... Oh. <laughs> one last one for you. One last one. <laughs> I, I do like how we've gone full circle talking about the heart rate thing again because I used it for my weird science. So I was yeah. wondering if the mother had grammatical errors when it was teaching the birds her, her, <laughs> her the hell, <laughs> Well, I'm thinking how cool, like, it would be an evolutionary need, I guess. So was there a time where this was like a really big issue for the species mm. and they've had to evolve now to create little passwords with their kids? That's right. That's so cool. I want AI to interpret it. Oh, my God. Max. And just say, hi, <laughs> this is your mum here. <laughs> <laughs> my lovely children. <laughs> what the hell? I can't talk about the songs. He's cut me off. Because yeah. if I talk about it now, yeah. then it doesn't work with the podcast because they have to cut this bit out about the <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Max. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think I know that? Right of reply. You just, you're making more work for the poor fella. <laughs> We'll let Toby sort it out. <sighs> what a legend, Toby. I'm what so sorry. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Space news. Oh, yeah. You're tuning into 4ZZZ and we're going to get into the space news on No Idea. You want to kick us off, Gay? I sure can. I've got some, some news about Thea. Have you heard about this? The, the massive planet that potentially smashed into Earth four and a half billion years ago. Comes out of this whole, this, this sort of like, issue we have where there are these weird blobs big mm. two big weird blobs in earth's mantle we're not really sure where they're from they're thousands of kilometers long of rock a bit denser than their surroundings and made from a different material there's one hypothesis that it was caused by a planet smashing into earth four and a half billion years ago very early earth uh and and leaving some of itself in our mantle mm. they've just done some computer modeling some researchers out of a couple of unis in the us and the uk published in nature that has suggested that they are artifacts from this collision between earth and another young planet which may also have been the same collision that formed the moon 
Oh, just a theory at this stage, uh, and this is just a model. It's not like a, they say it's not a smoking gun, mm. but it lends credence to the idea and means that we should pursue this idea further that these weird blobs in our mantle are remnants of a massive collision that sort of like smashed into the side and skidded off the side of Earth a bit and then potentially left us with the moon. Because they're studying the rocks again, weren't they, uh, from the moon that they collected back in the 70s, and they now established that the moon is actually 40 million years older than previously yeah. thought. So there you go. Does that align with your um, timelines, Gat? Haven't the foggiest. My guess is they don't have it down to 40 million year uh, error margins with their yeah, plus or minus. It's more like plus happen. or minus a million years. <laughs> Accurate. More like plus or minus <laughs> oh, a billion years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a billion years, yeah. Yeah. A billion. Okay, we're going to talk about SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And they have a disruptive business model. And this year alone, they've completed 70 flights. It uses its workhorse, the Falcon 9 booster. And one just flew overnight, and now it's flown 18 times. It's pretty cool. So good reusability on that booster. They, uh, SpaceX initially thought they could get 10 flights from a single booster, and then they had to change that to 15, and now they've changed that again and made it 20. They're not sure... SpaceX, not sure when to actually retire one of its boosters. But I just do some of the maths involved with this by the reusability. Mm -hmm. So a new SpaceX booster costs around $30 million to build. And then refurbishment costs have come down to as little as $1 million per flight. This means a booster that has just flown 18 times comes in at around $50 million. Now... If reusability wasn't a thing, you could expect like a tenfold expenditure uh, to to for those 18 flights. That would mean it would be a hundred, be half a billion dollars, or um, as against the 50 million that they spent on that single booster. And this doesn't even take into account how long it would take to build 18 new boosters as against refurbishing them, because the turnaround times for refurbishment is around one to two months. So it's fairly impressive, go. Well. We've lost him. No, I'm here. Nose. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> it is an audio environment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lunar vehicles for the moon. Uh, they're going to hook it up for the Artemis Five mission. Mm. Anyway, this month uh, they were meant to announce <coughs> which uh, car manufacturers were going to get uh, the, the go-ahead. Mm-hmm. And NASA's come back to them and said, we need another four months to check out the proposals and decide <laughs> who the winning proposal will be. There is some fear that NASA's budget is drying up, so lunar vehicles might not be a thing, similar to the Mars sample return mission and building the Lunar Gateway. I was putting that out there. Mm. Now, the ISS, the International Space Station, there's been a bit of conjecture lately as to whether there is utility in having an International Space Station. The ISS probably comes in at around $150 billion so far and is meant to be retired in the 2030s. And they're wondering if the money could have been better spent developing technology back on Earth. Oh, Max, I'm sick of these arguments. Who? It's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we left the cave. We need to leave the planet at some point. We should have people up in space. Of course, there's other stuff we can always spend money on down on planet Earth. But reality is you know it's it's the next step it's the next thing for people to do so we're going to do it and and we may as well do it properly and and 
you know, if you can run it well out of a government thing and make it contribute to the economy in the process. I'm sure that doesn't mention all of the benefits that all of that exploration mm. and, and development led to as well mm. uh, and all of the people that trained up and the opportunities it provided. So, I don't know. I'm, people like to bag on the ISS these days. Yeah. How haven't it? What happened? <laughs> it was proof that we could do it as well. Yeah. Like, we went, we secured the bag, we got up there. Yeah. So what? Fun little thing, I think. And now, every now and then, you see a moving star going across the horizon, and yeah. it's probably something from SpaceX these days, but... <laughs> <laughs> At least in the past, it was the ISS, <laughs> that little star blinking across Plus, the, how would the we have, night sky. How would we have such sick content like astronauts eat food up on the, the space station? And, you know, what is it like to, you know, it inspires so many dreams. It for does. at least people of our generation. Okay, so, you, so you, you're firmly... I'm, dogging, I'm saying that $150 billion was <laughs> well, well spent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I spoke about... I think your radio's up next, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oi, oi. <laughs> I spoke about Lucy last week, um, and Lucy uh, did get those close-up snaps of what they're calling Dinky, <laughs> the nickname of the asteroid, and... Uh, to NASA's astonishment, Dinky is not just one space rock. It is actually two space rocks, so it's a binary. And NASA has revamped its website. You should go and check it well, out. How much did that Ooh. cost, huh? No. Yeah, so you can't afford lunar cars, but can sure as hell yeah, afford a, a streaming service. <laughs> and now they're going to launch a free streaming service called NASA Plus. Ooh. So you can subscribe to that for free. And finally, DJ Oz. <laughs> Ingenuity, Mars Mini Chopper has now flown 66 flights. Oh, oh we're getting closer. So close to that magical number of 69. <laughs> and that's it for the Space News this week. I hope you enjoy the Space Force theme. Sounds pretty good. Damn. Sounds like an AFL team song. <laughs> it so does. Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you should be worried, Max, because if we if we get a robot that just sits there and laughs, you're basically obsolete. Oh, yeah, that's right. You tune into four triple Z, and the show has no idea, but not for much longer. <laughs> with Max, Izzy, and Gabe, sign us out. Yeah, that is all we have time for this week. Thanks for tuning in, listening to our science stories this week. We've had. Stories from Max, myself, and Peter and Jay this morning that you can go listen back to on the fortriplez.org.au website if you want to hear all the music in there as well and get all the songs we've played listed out for you, fortriplez.org.au, or you can listen to it as a podcast on pretty much any podcasting platform there is right now. Look up No Idea, let's know what the K, and then you, sometimes you need to chuck 4 Z on the end because the podcast is new, so it's not showing up in some feeds very easily. Nah. Uh, but if you type in No Idea 4 Z, up it pops. And yeah, the clips you heard of the fairy rent earlier in the show are from Diane Colembelli, Negrel et al, published in Current Biology. And that is all we have time for. And we'll speak to you next week. See ya. See ya. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. science. science.